0: Thank you. Pediatric Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me To Talk, the podcast. Today, we're going to be continuing the Autism Podcast series, and we're talking about something today that affects roughly 20 to 30 percent of young children diagnosed with autism. And actually, I guess it would affect 20 to 30 percent of all people diagnosed with autism because that's a percentage of people with autism who do not become functional communicators. We're not really talking about that piece today. We're talking about the piece that comes before that with helping a nonverbal child find his voice. And so we do encounter some children with autism who are so quiet and the only sounds that they make are those reflexive or automatic or non-voluntary noises like when they cough, when they sneeze, when they cry, when they shriek with pain, those kinds of reflect, when they burp, those kinds of reflexive noises. Those are really the only kinds of vocalizations that we hear. So we're going to talk about today... pardon me, in this show, how to move a child from being very quiet to using intentional, purposeful vocalizations. Now, you'll notice that I'm not saying words because you can't get to words without being noisy first. And a lot of times, parents that I've seen in the past or therapists will email me about this. You know, we've had Teach Me To Talk. The Lord has blessed us with Teach Me To Talk since 2008. So I've gotten so many just thousands of emails from parents, and again, and from therapists who are working with children who will tell me in the email or when I have conversations, this child does not vocalize. I'm, I'm, I've am I'm, i never really heard him vocalize unless it's, again, one of those reflexive vocalizations that we've talked about. And sometimes in they're saying, I can't get him to imitate words. And I think, whoa, 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 back up. There's something that comes first and it's making noise intentionally. And a lot of times when I talk to parents about this, they don't realize how quiet their child is until somebody points it out. And sometimes they've even felt like their child being quiet and and not being as uh, verbal or as vocal, really. I guess we're talking about vocalizations here, not necessarily words, which we think about verbalizations, but vocalizations. They, they were... They were happy about that when their child was a baby because they usually said something like, he was so good. And that's kind of a red flag to me now. I've just heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it for years and years from parents. And again, not just kids with autism, but we're particularly going to talk about that today. But any of our little friends, particularly those who have significant neurological differences or learning differences, they may already have a medical diagnosis. Not necessarily autism, but you know something is going on with them because They do not vocalize. And a lot of times parents think the problem is here in their throat. And structurally, and I've done some other shows where we've talked about the process of speech and how it really does begin with breathing your air in so that it goes down to your lungs and just the whole, the, that whole process. We're not going to go through that today because that's not really what's going on with kids with autism. It's here. It's a neurological difference. And so we need to talk about that. And we need to be real upfront with parents about that. And when, when they think, oh, there's got to be something wrong with his mouth, there's got to be something wrong with his vocal cords or vocal folds, however they say that, you know, you've really got to Talk about that up front—that autism really affects uh, a child's ability to communicate. And again, for some kids, it gets back to this, just being able to intentionally vocalize. And so, through this whole series, we have teased out differences in children with autism, even from those who have other kinds of speech and language delays. So that's what we're going to do on this show too—is talk about these kinds of kids, this subset of kids with autism who are not vocalizing. So if you were working with a child or you're parenting, a child who's already pretty noisy. And by this this kind of noisy, I mean, even if he's not saying words, he still makes noise. He still grunts. He still whines. He still babbles. He still does something to uh, vocally. You might hear him even being echolalic or repeating uh, things that other other people say or things he's heard in a movie or lines from his favorite book, but he's not really communicating, but he's still talking. He's still using his voice. So we're not going to talk about those kids today. So I want to make it really, really clear who we're talking about in this show, this population of children. And again, children who have red flags for autism, but are not vocalizing. And so we've got to get that intentional, purposeful vocalization going. And again, it starts with noise or sound effects or however you want to think about it that vocalization piece what can we do to help move a child from being really really quiet to using his voice purposefully and intentionally so that we can get to words and get to those those uh those word approximations that are like talking, but again, you can't get there with a kid who is totally quiet. So I'm going to give you my best strategies, and they're research-based too, but also I love it when research lines up with what I know from personal experience working with kids 27, 28 years now, however long that's been, and I love it, and I did a lot of research for this show to really make sure that there were no new studies that had come out or new techniques that I wasn't really sure about but again every study that I read in preparation for this show today really confirmed the strategies that we're going to talk about so I can't wait to share these with you all right just in case you're new to teach me to talk uh, I offer these uh, courses on YouTube for free for parents and therapists but if you're a therapist and you want to get continuing education credit you can sign up for that at uh, teachmetotalk.com the link is in the post below and this is course number 411. The other bonus for signing up for that, just that $5 CEU fee, is that you get a handout with this written summary of information. I used to call these show notes a long time ago, and sometimes people will uh, email me and say, I can't get the show notes. So you only get that when you pay for the continuing education credit. So be sure to look at that. And these strategies are all outlined, and it's just something that I think parents are really taking advantage of now, too, to be able to share this information with their team teams or with uh, other caregivers that are working with their children. So I wanted to let you know that's how you get the information that I'll be referencing in this show. Okay, so let's move on and talk about the specific differences in young children with autism that make it difficult for them to vocalize or become verbal become noisy and so again i always leave with this statistic and it is a little heartbreaking if you're a mom or a dad and you're hearing it and you say not only do i now i'm recognizing that my child has autism but now i'm also hearing you say that 20 to 30 percent of kids with autism don't ever really learn how to talk While that is true, we know that the research also says something else. It says that when we get a child involved in early intervention, that's in those first three years, four years, five years, when we do that early enough, we can make a significant difference in changing those odds for children. So I wanted to be sure to point that out. Some research also says, particularly uh, the pivotal response uh, treatment program, their stats are even better because they say when they can get a kid in early intervention and get this going where we're really focusing on vocalizations and verbalizations if you can do that early enough when a kid is two or three they have a 98 percent success rate with getting um, kids to become verbal so those are really really positive statistics that are research-based that i wanted to share with you on the show today too Um, One study that I also use a lot is uh, from Wodka 2013, so if you're a therapist and you want that that reference, just Google that, Wodka 2013, and it revealed that 70% of children with autism who did not talk at age four, did begin talking and using phrases, phrase links, so putting at least two words together by the time they were eight. So if you are listening to the show and you're a parent and you're saying, gosh, my kid is four, my kid is five, my kid is six, he's still not talking, or or you're listening now and you say, well, my kid is two, I've still got a lot of time, but at four, you're still waiting on words, don't give up for that. We don't ever give up on speech because 70% of the kids in that study did become a phrase producers by the time that they were eight. And again, functional communicators, back and forth uh, conversations with other people. And then 47% were fluent speakers by age eight. And so what does that mean? That means they're having conversations. So almost half the kids who weren't talking by four we're talking about aid, so I hope that that'll give you some hope. And particularly for parents who are listening to this and you're saying, "How what can I do? What can I do?" Helping a child become vocal and verbal and noisy is the very first step in moving a child toward using words. So the other thing, that was really uh, such an interesting piece of information that i read last week when i told you that i was prepping for this show is that the single most important factor linked to expressive language development in children with autism is it, it's it's just purely their cognitive skills so what are cognitive skills a lot of parents think about that is how smart a kid is so it's really how a kid learns how a kid thinks how he plans how he remembers and we have to know that about of kids with autism have a significant uh, cognitive or intellectual disability. So about a third of kids there, right there, there's already another little negative that we've, that that they're experiencing. And so with those kids, we know, okay, it's more, it's going to be harder. It's not going to be impossible. But when we have a kid who already is likely to get an autism diagnosis, and we know that they're... Are significant intellectual issues there. He's not following directions like he should. He's not learning daily routines and really participating in your routines in the classroom or at home like you should. Self-help skills are hard for this kid. It's hard for him to really learn how to feed himself. He's, it's hard for him to become potty trained. Those kinds of things, those kinds of cognitive skills are super, super predictors for us. So when we have a kid who is not Uh, who is demonstrating some of those cognitive issues and, again, is not learning like we expect him to learn and he's not vocalizing. We know what that kid, boy, we need to get him as noisy as we can because that is our very best way that we know that he is going to be able or more likely to move uh, toward using words. In case you're interested, you want to know what that other breakdown is with the cognitive skills. 31% have significant intellectual disability, and, again, that's an IQ below 70. We don't use the phrase mental retardation anymore because it's outdated and a lot of a lot of people feel like that's politically correct but sometimes it's or politically incorrect but then sometimes when we talk to parents they don't really understand what we're talking about until we use those really um, just honest Terminology like they would use, and 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 they'll begin to ask you when you start talking about things like intellectual disability and cognitive impairment. Sometimes parents then become a little more, um, at the beginning, a little more defensive because they don't necessarily want to hear that about their child. But again, it's something that they've uh, that we've got to discuss, which which makes it a little bit harder again for a child to uh, learn to use words. And we ha- and a lot of times, especially when I was seeing kids from all over the country. I was so surprised by the kids who had come with significant motor issues. These were kids, again, not necessarily with autism, but kids who weren't walking at three. But no one had ever really told them, hey, if walking is really, really a challenge for your child, talking will be a challenge too. And so you have to make sure that, again, when you're working with families, especially in the early diagnostic process or the early referral process, when they're just getting into early intervention or just getting into whatever agency or system that you work in, and they're really realizing and coming to terms that their child has learning differences you know when we when we're talking about autism and then we talk about the possibility of never learning how to talk on top of that it gets a little negative for parents so just as it would you know I can totally understand that as a mom and so we have to really really share that with empathy and with compassion and and not be a dream killer for a parent but at the same time really hold that um uh, information there and and know that it's going to make it a little harder so 31 percent have significant intellectual disability 25 percent of kids or people with autism or autistic people is now that it's kind of swung back to using that terminology uh versus person with autism 25 percent are in the borderline intellectual range 70 to 85 and we know then 44 percent of people with autism have average to above average iq so when we look at that breakdown that's that's interesting for you as a therapist to know kind of what to expect with that and where kids fall with that because there's so many myths about autism so many myths about uh (laughs) You know, and it kind of swings either way. People sometimes, you know, think that everybody is with autism is gifted and has intellectually and has a special kind of. Um rain man-like skill, uh, savant, uh, whatever words, you know, I feel like I'm kind of stepping all over my words with that. And I certainly don't want to be disrespectful to anyone who's listening or, or hurt any parents' feelings. But sometimes parents kind of hear that, but they don't hear the other side, that about 30%, 31% have significant intellectual disability. So again, that's something that as therapists, we're going to have to work through with parents. All right, so that's the that's the. that's Number one thing, the number one difference with kids with autism is there may also be an intellectual uh, challenge there for those kids, which again is going to make it even harder to learn how to talk. Another thing that makes acquiring speech so difficult for kids with autism is that approximately sixty percent of children with autism also have apraxia of speech. So, what is apraxia of speech or childhood apraxia of speech? Is that they have the with apraxia, and this is just the most basic way that i explain this to parents and again it's not the it's not the uh we don't include as much professional terminology as we would because we really want parents to understand this so they know the words that they want to say they just have difficulty planning that word difficulty getting that word from here to here to their little mouse and so you can see how that would make it a lot more difficult for kids with autism who also have apraxia to learn how to talk too. But here's the kicker. So many parents hear the word apraxia and they cling to that when the real reason or the main reason, the biggest challenge for their child really would be the social interaction uh, challenges and differences that we see with kids who have autism. So sometimes, you know, I've said in conferences before uh, when I'm teaching these uh, courses live to therapists, we're focused on the wrong A. Sometimes we're focused on apraxia and a parent gets so hyper fixated on the speech part of the vocalization part that we miss the reason that a child, but the biggest thing that we should be working on is again, that social interaction piece, that engagement piece. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that uh, in this series. uh, Show number 403 focuses on that specifically with teaching social games is our very first strategy to get that interaction going. So if you are listening to this series and you Think, my child is not vocalizing but you have not addressed the social interaction piece I highly recommend that you start there I recommend it so much that I would say turn off this show and turn on the other one because that's how important it is to get that social interaction piece going so as therapists that's something else that we have to really balance when we're talking to parents and when we're saying uh, when we're talking about autism, but we're also saying there's something else laid on this, the apraxia piece, you know, again, in apraxia is, there's no evidence of any kind of muscular difference with that child, but we know from the other things that are happening with him, and this is not a show about apraxia, so I'm not going to go through all of those indicators, but when we know that's also, a part of it, we have to be really careful to walk that fine line with parents so that they understand, you know, we're, we're not just talking about apraxia here. Autism is also something that we have to address, address, and those, those the apraxia, even when we get speech going, we still have to focus on these other areas because that's what makes a child be able to communicate and not just verbalize or not just use words. We want them to, again, have that, that back and forth, that respect. Uh, reciprocity that we use in conversation that that's really the most important thing to get going but Because a child has to vocalize and has to be noisy before he can use words, teaching a very quiet child to vocalize is an early goal. It's justifiable. It's the way that we get to talking. So I want to be sure that we think about pairing these focuses uh, together for a child. Okay, so those were the two differences. Let me say one other thing here um, that we want to talk about. As a speech-language pathologist and as someone who's done this for a long time, you might be thinking, and even when you meet with your speech pathologist who works with you and with your child, you might be thinking that because we have this experience in this education, we have tricks <laughs> that can make a child talk. And that is simply not true. <laughs> we have strategies. We have science-based techniques. We know from our own personal experiences and certainly what we learned about in grad school and what, again, working with children and families have taught us for years and years and years. We know what strategies and techniques to put in place, but again, there's no real magic formula. And sometimes that's the kind of conversation that we need to have with parents who maybe have you know, the expectation up here with they're coming into therapy, they're positive about it, but they think, gosh, my really quiet child is going to go from not talking at all, not making a noise at all, to, you know, speaking in full sentences in just a few speech therapy sessions. That's completely unrealistic. And although we want parents to believe in speech therapy and we want to have high expectations for our children... At the same time, we don't want to be so, um, we don't want have unrealistic expectations, and so we really, really have to talk about that with parents, and even though we can't make a child talk, we can certainly set the stage, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today with our strategies what we can do to get the right strategies in place and consistently, and here's another thing that I want to talk about that's so specific to uh, children with autism or red flags for autism who are not vocalizing. You are not going to be able to take your child to speech therapy as a parent and just do those those. Things in speech therapy once or twice a week for 30 minutes to an hour and get significant results. When we have a kid who's not vocalizing, who's two and who's not babbling, who's not using a lot of directed, intentional, purposeful vocalizations to you... You can't just practice these little, these things a few times. These are things that you've got to incorporate into a child's everyday routines. And so as a parent, if you're hearing this, I'm hoping that you're thinking, oh gosh, that's me, that's on me. I've got to double down and use these strategies and apply these strategies and really implement this treatment plan so that we can make a big difference. Now, if you're a therapist, that's on us to be able to tell parents and teach parents. And I'm not saying that, that we're just gonna use that, Coaching consultative model, where we just kind of are doing what i 'm doing here in this show when we have the the privilege of working with families directly face to face they 're seeing us or even if it 's a teletherapy session. We have got to do the heavy lifting and show the parents model for the parents this this is the strategy that we're going to use and this is how it looks and i want to show you how to do it here this is something that's really worked for me would you mind if i show you how to do that you know however you have to word it to really be in compliance or fidelity with your state program but at the same time you've got to tell a parent how important it is that they practice these things and it's again it's not just a once or twice a week shot and expect to make any difference especially when a child is not vocalizing consistently and so we've got to help them get control of their little voices and so remember with this now I think I've said it already but just in case you haven't heard it we are not focusing on words yet. We are just focusing on verbalizations. And so a lot of times what I'll say to a parent is, you know, your child isn't vocal enough yet for us to really, really know what's going on with him. And so there's no way, like a particular speech diagnosis, certainly we know about autism, but We can say you know that that's just unrealistic remember when i was saying you can't get there from here when you have a a child who isn't able to vocalize intentionally you can't get to words quickly as quickly as parents would think that you can uh, without moving through these steps to really increase uh, the intentionality of their vocalizations and again Why do we know that? Because it would have already happened. If it were going to happen like that, it would have already happened before we see a child at 18 months or 24 months or 36 months or four or whenever we get that child referred to us. And so we have to talk to parents about that and make sure that they know that our goal here, we're not thinking about words yet for this child. We're thinking about vocalizations or making noise. So let's move on and talk about the strategies. What do you do? is all fine and good to know this is our goal I can't work on words I've got to work on on getting this kid uh, to vocalize intentionally first but how do we do that what what can we do and again sometimes as therapists this is where we feel uh, really really challenged because again we can't make a child do these so these are the strategies that we know again From that are research-based and just from personal experience. And I bet that you have some of these same strategies too. And a lot of times with therapists, they'll say, hey, I really like your show because it reminds me of all this stuff that I know, but that I don't always do. And so if that's you, you've got to commit today (laughs) to double down if you're thinking about particular children on your caseload, which I've used to say this all the time, but I haven't said in a long time. I hope that when you're listening to the show... Whether you're listening to a podcast while you're working out or driving in your car between visits or cleaning your house, whatever you do as your therapist or wherever you are as a parent listening to the show, you know, of course, you're going to think about your own kid. But for therapists, I hope that you're thinking, oh, this is relative to this kid and I can use this strategy with this kid and make yourself some specific notes. And so uh, I think that that's when we get the most out of these kinds of continuing education opportunities when we think, how can I use this? Who is this relevant to? And sometimes in my career, I've looked back and thought, gosh, I wish I had done this with this kid two years ago. I wish I had noticed this. I wish I had known about this. So that's something that I want you to really think about as a therapist too. How can this show change my practice? How can this show change what I'm going to do the very next day that I work or the very next time that I see a child? So here we go. The number one strategy to increase intentional, vo- intentional vocalizations with children with autism or red flags for autism. And honestly, this works with kids who aren't vocalizing for any kind of reason. Our number one strategy is movement. Move those little bodies. Now, why is movement so effective? And if you've got your hand out, you'll see it right here. There are three kinds of kids that we can apply this to. Movement helps busy kids slow down. So think about our little friends with autism who are just in constant motion. These are the kids who kind of get up running and they run all day long until they sleep. And then they get up the next day and do it again. And if you're parenting a child like that, you know what I'm talking about. They are just constantly in motion. But you know what? When we when we get those little... Uh, sensory systems saturated with movement when they are satiated, when they have moved and moved and moved and moved and moved, and, moved, and we've done that intentionally, and we've done that with a purpose, movement helps those kids slow down and movement helps them settle down, so they are able to uh, slow down enough to begin to listen to you, to be able to, again, interact with you, and 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 they've gotten their system, they've gotten that sensory system bump that they've needed, and they are set, and they are ready, so that's, that's it can help busy kids slow down enough to vocalize. Movement can also help low arousal kids rev up enough to vocalize so what do i mean by low arousal kids Well, these are our kids that are pretty passive and pretty flat and these are the kids that again seem kind of uh, checked out some of the time they're more self-absorbed with doing what they want to do and they're not necessarily in constant motion like our little sensory seeker friends that we just talked about but these are kids at the other the other side of the pendulum the kids who again are just uh um we, we sometimes have to do a lot to get them to notice us and a lot to get them to participate. And so that's why movement's so great for those kids because it really gets their little nervous systems pepped up and revved up and on alert so that they can begin to vocalize. The other kind of kid that's really common with, that we see in children who are really, really young as toddlers and preschoolers who have red flags uh, for autism are kids who get stuck. And so these are our kids who self-stem a lot, our kids who persist separate a, a lot, and those are kids who have, again, a lot of those repetitive movements, and again, remember, there are three kinds of stems. You can have repetitive speech or vocalizations. You can have repetitive body movements, or you can have repetitive uh, actions that you do with objects, and so what does movement do for those kids? It helps them move on. It helps them stop stemming because they have something else to do with their bodies, or their, their little hands, if they're stemming with an object, Or uh, with their speech, it gives them something else to do. And so that's why I love movement. It's our number one strategy. And sometimes we as SLPs don't use it like we should. Or as parents, you think, oh, a kid's going to speech therapy. He's got to sit down and shut up and listen. No. For some of our kids, it's the opposite. We need to be having them moving, moving, moving throughout the session, and especially at the beginning to really regulate their systems. And so if our number one strategy is move, and remember too, we're particularly talking about who today? Kids who aren't vocalizing. So that little subset of children. So with those kinds of kids this is our very best initial strategy and the good news is any kind of movement works it can be running and some of you who are therapists you think oh please tell me i'm not gonna have to chase a kid the whole time you might <laughs> because it takes 10 to 15 minutes sometimes of continuous movement for kids who are really really quiet are eerily quiet kids who hardly ever make a purposeful noise at all sometimes it takes that long sometimes for those kids it takes a good 30 minutes for some of you at home parents as you never really tried this before you might think well even when he's running and moving and I, I don't hear very much noise for those kids you know you, you think you that intensity has to increase so something like running jumping on a trampoline jumping on the bed swinging in a blanket uh for us it's easier for kids who again are mobile so playing on playground equipment if they're not mobile we're going to have to do this for them so we talked about the swinging in the blanket or the bouncing on your legs anything that you can do to really again get those little systems in the right place so busy kids may have to get, again, as we use, uh, the word I used before was satiated. They may have to move so much till they are just uh, at that just right place where where they can vocalize. Those low arousal kids have to move so that they can get in just uh, that just right place where they can vocalize where they're revved up enough to do it. And again, the kids who are stuck in stems or perseverations, or maybe they just can't transition, those kinds of kids, that you have to do it continuously. It's not just you know let me chase you for 10 seconds and then we're going to sit down for five you know, we're going to you're going to sit down for 25 minutes with me and be okay it's not going to work like that so we've got to build those opportunities in when I have a kid who seems to like or need a lot of movement and again these are kids that we're really working on with vocalizing that that's what I plan for this session it's just movement opportunities so in our uh, clinic in Kentucky we had a blow-up tent I've used that a lot a little blow-up bounce house that's a great uh, tool because kids can stay in there and stay in there and stay in there and you as their mom or as their therapist get in there with them and again your goal is just move 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 anything too uh that We talked about any kind of little playground equipment, any kind of... Uh, anything where you're going to get them in motion and you plan that you plan well for this session we're going to have you know four or five different movement options for this kid and that's why social games work so well too for uh children for movement because many many times we're incorporating movement into those games so like ride a little horsey when you're bouncing a child on your lap and then you stand up and you play ring around the rosies where you go around and around in this that ring around the rosies song you know as many times as the kid wants to play it, five or ten times, and then he starts to run away from you, and you think, okay, well, this is running. I'm going to play chase with him. I'm going to incorporate this in a social game, but your point is here that you are moving, 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 and that's what you plan. That's what you plan for the session, and you tell a parent up front, we are going to move, and we are going to move, and we are going to move until I can get him realizing that he has control of his little voice, and I want to hear all kinds of noise uh, while we're doing this. So, Here's another important point. This is actually number two. While we're doing this, let's talk about your job. What do you need to do as the adult? Well, you need to make more noise yourself, not more talking. So on the handout, I have less talk, more noise. That's what we need to do. So rather than modeling words, and this is again, as we're moving the child, rather than doing that, we focus on saying more sound effects or more vocalizations that are not words. So yelling screaming, even whining, whispering, yawning, snoring, uh, anything, even like uh, blowing raspberries with a child, anything like that, that, that would get those early vocalizations going. And again, we're looking for intentional vocalizations and purposeful vocalizations, not just he's screaming when he's crying, but is he screaming because he's running and he's having a blast and he wants you to see him. And a lot of times kids will start to do that when when you model that with them, and so as you were swinging them, as you were running with them, as you were bouncing or uh, in on the trampoline with them or whatever you're doing, you've got to do those same kinds of things. So just let go, and and uh, just just think, less words, more noises, and think about those sounds effect, sound effects and the things that you can do. So that's what we want to do as we do movement. The, now the other part of this, we talked about this with uh, that parents aren't just going to be able to think that this can happen in you know one or two speech therapy sessions a week and then uh, the child's going to make enough progress parents have got to do this all day long with vocalizing all day long with the child not just with words but with uh, vocalization that a child might not be uh, that a child might be able to imitate so we've got to really work more noise and more sound effects into their daily routine so help parents really really come up with a list and brainstorm with the kinds of things that they can do and I've got a list of these things on your handout here. So some of the things that we might say would be, you know, how can we increase these noise? So let's think about all the things that you can do when you are eating your meals or having a snack. So you might slurp your drink, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then after you finish, do a just a, you know, that exhalation. So talk to parents about that little routine. You know, I want you doing that all the time. And, and you say to them, let me model that for you let's just do that right now let's get him a drink and i'll have a drink and you have a drink and let's just sit here and let's just have fun with this and and think about how how we can make these sounds and i don't want you to go crazy with 10 different sounds i just want you to work on slurping your drink and then doing that exhalation after now as a therapist if you're not comfortable with that kind of coaching or modeling you got to get that way. You can't just tell a parent, hey, I want you to do all these sound effects during the day. And I want you to just come up with things and just be noisy all day long. And guess what? I'll talk to you next week and we'll see how that goes. You can't do that. You have got to give them more specific ideas. And don't let any program tell you that you have got to have a parent come up with everything. I think, I mean, I get emails from parents who tell me they are so put on the spot with that that they can't even think, about their, they, again, they just feel like the spotlight is on them and they have so much pressure during that, that they're not really able to think about that. And so they really want your ideas. And so Ask a parent, too. You you might even say, do you want me to give you some ideas with this? Do you, do you want to hear what's worked for me, or do you want to sit here and kind of brainstorm it, and then I'll give you some more if you don't come up with some. You could do something like that. But you've got to get pretty skilled at knowing, again, how to ask those questions according to whatever model your state early intervention system is using or... know if you're in private practice or schools and you can kind of do your own thing that's fantastic but if you're in that other situation just and you feel like a parent never says anything and it's just so hard for you to pull it out of them do not let them sit there in that awkward silence because you know what they're going to replace you (laughs) with somebody who is going to be able to walk them through this and really really give them the information they need so talk with them about that and say you know, like I just said, I laid out, you know, this is what we're going to do with these drinks, and this is what we're going to focus on for the next 10 or 15 minutes in therapy, and I I want to see if this is going to work, I, I want to see how successful this is going to be, and so set it up like that, and say, you know, and we may not see any results from this for two, three weeks, and, or months, <laughs> but this is something that we need to do, so let's come up with these little, these specific little uh sound effects or noises that you're going to make and you tie those to daily routines so that parents have a real opportunity to practice that and then you not only tell them to you or suggest to them recommend to them y'all talk about it but you also model it and that's my whole point so you would do that with them so I'm just going to do it here with you like I would and so you know I would say we're you know we're just going to sit here with this drink and we're all going to drink or if you have a snack we're all going to snack and we're all you know every time I take a bite I'm going to be sure that I'm doing whatever our little target sound is. And it it might be something like, "Mm, mm, 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 mm." and you might think it's so strange that I just modeled that for you that way with full on with my shoulders and my little, my expression that I use with that. But that's what we have to do. You can't just tell a parent you can but it's so much more effective when you show them how to do it and when you help them do it so here we have my tagline tell them show him help him that's also effective for parents too and so you have to show them how to incorporate these strategies and again these might be things that a parent is really uh it's new for a parent because they think you're in speech therapy and we're going to work on words and i'm going to get right in front of him and our word today is going to be drink and you're going to say that that's not it we've got to start at a at an easier earlier vocalization for him so we're just going to work on sound effect kinds of things and vocalizations and so again you walk through that with them so what are some more kinds of things that you could talk about with that it might be with a parent that you can talk about grunting that um uh, uh and kids really if you think about it this is so tied into kids who are typically developing we hear these vocalizations all day and we all still do them as an adult you probably make noises during the day uh, communicatively that you don't, you don't even realize that you're making them. And they may not even be communicative. You just may be doing it for yourself with like grunting with extra effort. You know, when you're opening a a, a jar in the kitchen, those kinds of things. And kids love those. And, and and sometimes they are so novel and especially now a kid with autism, we're going to talk about this in the next strategy. Uh, well, let's just go ahead and talk about this. We're going to imitate any sound that a kid can make, and again, this is called reciprocal imitation, where they make the sound first, and then we imitate them. And as SLPs, you know, we know this strategy, but a lot of times parents, we've talked about imitation, how important that is, and we're all focused on that, and we say what we want them to say, and they say it, but a lot of times it's not going to happen that way. So we have to get reciprocal imitation in place first and that just means we are going to imitate any sound that the child makes and so that's what I was talking about with grunting so with a vocalization like grunting if you you've heard your kid that you're working with do that you said oh I, I mean sometimes I'll think that was almost a grunt <laughs> then you tell a parent that's the sound that I want you to model all day and when you hear him doing it I want you to do it back to him and so it's extremely rare that we get a child who never produces any kind of sound and sometimes with kids we even start with those things that are reflexive so we talked about that before things like uh, body sounds coughing sneezing yawning laughing those crying when they're vocalizing a lot of times we uh, have to start with those kinds of things with reciprocal imitation too and again you might not want to do it in the in just the midst of it when a toddler is having just a total meltdown and screaming his head off he can't he, at that point he cannot focus on what you're doing he seems out of control and he is he doesn't have control of his little voice at that point to be able to really intentionally do it uh, These kids who aren't purposeful vocalizers all the time. And so that's not the best time to do it, but I'm saying when you are in the midst of a situation with a child and you hear a noise like this, you really want to reinforce it. And that's that we're going to imitate whatever sound that the child makes. And so uh, certainly that's something we need to talk about with parents. Let me give you some more examples. So things like, clearing your throat even and think about it with typically developing babies they love that kind of uh that kind of a little game and so that's something fun that we can do with a kid with autism if you uh hear a kid with autism who hums that's one of his self-stem things that he does try that. Try that reciprocal imitation where you hear him hum and then wait a little bit when he has a pause. You hum there and see if you can get his attention and get some of that nice back and forth going. And so when we're doing this reciprocal imitation or imitating any sound that a child makes, you have to be sure that the child can see you before it's effective. Now I've told this story over and over and if you've heard it before, I was going to say I apologize, but I really don't, because I think when you hear the same story over and over, you get my point. I worked with a therapist back when we lived in Louisville, and she was just had such a great reputation. I liked her so much, but I didn't really know her very well, and so this is at the very beginning of my career, and I was a little bit intimidated. So I was there kind of in the same preschool with her and watching her, what she did, and we were both working in a gym with a kid with, I had my kid and she had her kid. And you know, again, those were back in the day when we pulled kids out and we, uh, I was watching her and she, this little guy obviously was on the autism spectrum and he was just running around this big gym. I mean, running and running and running. And she was, and sometimes he would slow down but she was always right behind him. And if he touched the wall, she touched the wall. If he kicked a ball, she he, she kicked the ball whatever he did, she did. And that was a beautiful example. If we had just videoed her in that context or just talked about that, she was fantastic. But you know what the problem was? That kid had no awareness that she was doing it. And she probably, I'm not saying anything bad about her. I'm just observing what happened and passing that along to you and it was so instructive for me because i saw myself in her (laughs) i saw myself implementing strategies with no regard for what the child was doing so when you're using reciprocal imitation with a child you are imitating the same sounds that he's doing or even if you're doing it back at a a pre-verbal level where you're just imitating actions like she was doing with this for this child if he hit the wall she hit the wall if he kicked the ball she kicked the ball You've got to be sure that he knows that you're there <laughs> and that you're doing the same thing for so for for me for reciprocal imitation i since that day back in whatever year that was 2002 whatever i have really tried to make it a point and i think it's more effective to do reciprocal imitation when you are face to face with a child and again for sometimes with our little guys with autism. Who are moving, and we want them to move, and that's great. But you still, when you use this strategy, you've got to rein them in, and and bring them in so that they can see you, and so again that they know that you're imitating them. So that's a caution that I would make, and that's that's something that I always, I tell this story to parents when I'm talking about it, when I'm talking about reciprocal imitation. And if we're, let's say that we I'm um, meeting with a child at his home, and we are outside playing in the yard together, and. I'm talking to mom about reciprocal imitation, but he's on the other side of the, the swing set from us. And I, you know, I'll just tell the story. I'll say, now, mom, now we're, we're not going to do it when he's over there not paying attention. You know, I want you to save your best strategies for when he's right here with you. And that's when we use reciprocal imitation. So when he's in the swing and you're in front of him and you are swinging him and you're saying, wee, wee, that's great. And you hear him do a throat clear. <coughs> Or a laugh, which is probably what you would be more likely to get on the swing. That's what I want you to do. That's when I want you to imitate what he's doing. You can do it these other times. But it's really most effective when you're eye to eye and face to face. So that's the point I wanted to make about that. All right. Um, let's see. Let's move on. We've talked about moving. That was strategy number one. The second strategy, less talk, more noise. That's strategy number two. Third strategy, reciprocal imitation. Imitate any sound that a child makes. And we want to be sure, again, we're eye to eye and face to face. Our fourth strategy. And I love this one, and I've written a lot about it. So you can go on, teach me to talk, and read about that. Or I forgot to mention this. All of these examples and uh, this information is from the Autism Workbook. Now, today, I took these strategies and I moved them around a little bit, kind of changed the order because it made more sense to, to the flow of the show. But you can go read this information and get the written summary uh, uh, the, in, in more detail in the autism workbook and i said the written summary here the written summary for the show that's just the handout here but the the content is pulled from uh, my therapy manual the autism workbook and so you can find out information about that below in the post pardon me if you're watching on youtube and if you're listening on uh, just another your iphone or whatever your other podcast app, you can get that at Teach Me to Talk. So it's the Autism Workbook. Uh, so here, here's uh, I've written a lot about it in the workbook, and I also have it uh, a whole set of articles about this on my website at Teach Me to Talk. So look for those articles if you again need some more information about this. But this, this one is important. You're going to imitate what a child does. And then you're going to take it a step further. So this is what you do after reciprocal imitation. You wait. You expectantly wait for that child to join in and imitate what he, the sound that he's made. And so this is, I've written about it using this in the context of being in the car or being in the bathtub at home or in the swimming pool. It happens a lot when we're talking about these kind of movement things that we're doing when we're on a trampoline with a kid or we're jumping on a bed with a kid or we're letting a kid kind of go back and walk back and forth and jump back and forth on the living room furniture. He's on the couch. And we jump to the chair and we jump back to the couch, those kinds of things. This is another time to really use this. When you hear them do a sound, you're going to imitate and they're going to wait expectantly. Now I've talked about this uh, before with, we have to just not wait. You've got to wait expectantly and you've got to do your Uh, tell me face and I wish that was my expression it's not it's from another SLP blogger and I I don't even think she uh, I don't even think her site is active anymore but that's where we lean forward and and with everything in us we are are showing that child that it's your turn to talk and we fully are vocalized and we fully expect you to be able to do this back to us and so when we when I teach courses live I I say to therapists, okay, on the count of three, all of us are going to show, we're going to model our best tell me faces. And it's, I I wish I had taken a, a picture of this because I would get the best expressions. And you know what? Everybody's doing the same thing. We're all doing that anticipatory body language. We're all leaning forward and we're making our eyes wide. And a lot of times we do that little gasp like, are you ready? You know, it's your turn. <laughs> Are you gonna make that sound? And again, that's setting the stage, that's making it more and more likely. And as a therapist, you probably do that. You probably can picture in your mind you're doing that. You know how it feels when you do it. But you know what? A lot of times we do it, but we don't give ourselves credit for using that expectant waiting strategy. It's just something that we've learned how to do. It's worked for us. Maybe nobody's even really told you to do that. You've just watched an experienced therapist or you've stumbled upon that yourself. And even you subconsciously, you may not even realize you're doing it, but I bet you are. And when you don't know that you're doing it and you don't give it the validity that you should, you don't tell a parent to do it or you don't explain what you're doing. And so that's why we've got to make this a formal strategy. Not only are we going to use reciprocal imitation and imitate what a child has done, or even if we're modeling first if we're doing some of those noises that we talked about before with slurping our drinks and fake coughing and or doing an animal sound or a vehicle noise or any little sound effect kind of thing that that we a kid would be more likely to imitate one because it's easy and two because it's novel and gets his attention when we're doing that we've got to have that expectant posture as if to again set the stage and say you know, we're waiting for you to do that. And sometimes when we don't talk about that piece with parents, they don't know. Or if you say, just imitate them and wait, okay, they do it, but then they're just, there's nothing else on their part. You know, the child, let's say the child does a sneeze. Let's say he sneezes. And a parent, when we have a kid like this, who again is kind of tough, Uh, uh, and it's harder to get vocalizations going and I've told them you know we're going to imitate every sound they make even these little body noises and so a parent then might do a little fake sneeze and fake sneeze like that but then you know you've got to look at the kid after that you know and wait like are you going to do it too and so you've got to explain that to a parent you've got to you've got to help them walk through that and sometimes parents have said gosh I just feel so uncomfortable when I'm doing that I just feel silly and kind of one um One young mom that I worked with uh, about a year ago, she would say, you know, it just just kind of feels real fake when I'm going (gasps) like that. And I tell her, you know, I told her and I'll tell you, and I would tell her the same thing or any other parent today, do it anyway. Even if it doesn't feel natural to you, even if it doesn't feel, um, again, you think that's not my personality. I'm not, I'm not like you, Laura. I don't, I don't act like you. I don't talk like you. Who cares? (laughs) Do it implement these kinds of strategies and we have to help parents to kind of get out of their comfort zone and how I how I do this a lot is say you know if what you were doing were going to work I wouldn't even be here and again, that's uncomfortable to say sometimes to a parent, you've got to be at the right point in the conversation where that's not going to be hurtful or sound too harsh. But we have to get parents doing new things. You know, they, they, and and that's why they're there. They want your ideas. They want you to tell them exactly what to do. And so this is a really, really important part. So let's just talk through, let's walk through this and talk through this. What do we do about expectant waiting? Well, and, and how do we do this? So we're going to model and it's, it, and, or it might be imitate, whatever it is, if models if you're doing it, you know, on your own, you haven't heard a child do it, or imitate that sound that they did. And then you're gonna wait at least 10 seconds with that anticipatory body language. Remember what we talked about with that? We're gonna lean forward, we're gonna make our eyes wide. Or sometimes, you know, we might even do the little, you know, open mouth posture, like, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready for you to say it. And then what do we do if they don't, if the child doesn't make that vocalization? we do it again. We don't just give up. You can't give up after one or two little times. And I've often had parents say to me, well, if I tried as hard as you did, I don't even think I'd have as much of a problem anymore. And I want to say you are right. (laughs) And that's what you've got to do is really increase your effort and increase your own, uh, intentionality and your own, um, your own purpose with this so that, that we are making sure that we are, uh, at the top of our game all the time with that. And so we're going to just keep trying. So we're going to model that same sound. How long do you do it? Do you do it 64 times? No, (laughs) three to five times before we would move on to a new sound. And so why do we do that it's to give that child's little system and to give his little brain enough time to catch up and a lot of times therapists write me about this too they'll say you know i'm working with a child with autism and he has imitation but it's very delayed like we will do something we will work on a word we will work on A sign, whatever we're doing with him, and he doesn't do it then. And I work on it and I work on it a few times, and I just feel like I'm getting nowhere. And then he does it 10 minutes later in the session, or two minutes later, or whatever. What is that? I call that catch-up time, but really it's just that lag in processing. And we know that those children have that time. Why? Because they're not talking yet. They're not. And so we know that that little system, again, is not working as efficiently as we want it to. And so we have to build that time into wait, And we have to build that time into practice. And so, you know, sometimes with a child, you, you might even go beyond that three to five time time. Uh, model there but I just kind of use that because that's what I use for withholding it's that same guideline where I'm still going to model something three to five times and I've just generalized it here but if you think oh boy this is a kid that you know I have I'm not going to hear it for 10 more minutes I would tell you don't switch activities stay with that activity you may again back off a little bit in that you have to give him less pressure, but you still have to give him that same amount of time. So, because you know, uh, it's just going to take him that long. It's going to take him that long. It's going to take his little brain that long before he can process all that. He knows what you're doing. And then to be able to send that signal back out. And again, you might think, well, that's not really what's going on. He's running all over the room. I I see him moving on to another toy. If you're hearing it two minutes later, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, that is what's going on. And so stay with that same activity. Don't give up too soon. Keep modeling and just know that it's going to take that much repetition. Repetition always promotes mastery. And again, sometimes as SLPs, we do not think about mastery like our colleagues in ABA think about it, or even our colleagues that are OT and PTs. We hear a word or see a sign, or something a few times, and we think he's got it, and we've gotten away, you know, we keep data, because goodness knows, we have to provide evidence that what we're doing is working, we have to monitor children, and that's great, but we still don't work on something long enough, and for, for it to really be mastered, or owned by that child, so for these kinds of kids, you have got to give them that opportunity for extra practice and really um really know that about that child and again that's very individualistic if you haven't heard a child do that kind of delayed imitation like something you've worked on I mean this can happen with anything this can happen with like waving bye bye you'll practice with the kid at the end of a session oh you just I mean you practice with them and practice with them and practice with them and then uh, you know sometimes I would do this at uh, our clinic and then look out in the parking lot and that's when they're going to wave and so that's delayed imitation and so you know with those kids I've got to leave enough time here I can't I've got I've got it I've got to do enough model enough and then wait long enough for that to really happen so don't get in such a rush that you think oh this is not happening I've done it three times he's not going to say it let me try something else don't do that be consistent, provide those additional models. All right. So that was strategy number one, two, three, four. Let's move on to the fifth strategy here. We're going to change our space. Sometimes when you're in a different environment with a kid, they do totally different things. And so that's one part of this, but another part of change your space is also thinking about the acoustic properties of where you are and if you can get some if you can get a place like a gym or an empty garage or a basement or Uh, somewhere else with a child that's just a larger room there's more likely the opportunity that you can get a little almost echoey thing going and children can again hear that so that's certainly something that's uh, a fun uh, thing to think about and again I want to give you some ideas that if you've been working with a child for a while and you just feel kind of stuck this might be something that you would need to do so change your space with that so that you can get a new location a lot of times for that with me it means like I said before is I'm thinking about movement with that child which is our number one strategy you might take the child outside so if you have played inside with a child or if a mom says to you he gets so vocal in in water um bath time <laughs> think about oh i want to see this i, I want to do this with him so you know i'm going to I'm going to see him with his mom and, you know, we're going to go outside in their little baby pool or, or we're going to be, he can have a bath while I'm there this week. And so talk about that and talk about with a and She says, you know, Laura, I've noticed that if he's in the shower, our, uh, our big shower and I have the door closed, he's a lot more vocal. That's what a mom needs to do. That's where she can get these vocalizations are really, really going, and that can maybe make a real difference. The next strategy we want to talk about uh, is change your props. So maybe it's the toys that you're using. Maybe you can change some of the materials that you're using and and really facilitate vocalizations that way. So you might try toys or objects that amplify sound. And so the best toy for me for these little things are those little cheap uh, microphones that you get at the dollar store. And so kids love those. And so instead of, like, singing a song, you're just going to focus on vocalizations with that. So you're just going to do... And even a vocalization that you've heard them do. If they have a little sound that they say, like, duh, and you've and their moms have heard them say it intermittently, that might be what you model in the microphone. If you have been playing with them and you hear them do, let's say... Um, Let's say you were playing with something earlier in the session and you made a sound. Let's say you did something like cock a doo and he was alert on that and he liked that sound and he thinks that's funny. That's what you would do into the microphone. And if you want to make it even a little simpler for him and just focus on the doo part of your cock doo you know, whatever, whatever's relevant for your child, whatever, whatever he likes or whatever little sound effect that he's attracted to, do that. My point is don't worry about singing a whole song or, or using words. Go with vocalizations. Go with those easier, earlier things. Because remember, all we're going for at this point with this kid is noise. And noise that he makes on purpose. So those little uh, cheap microphones are good. Anything even simple like a paper towel roll or an empty uh, roll of toilet paper where you are vocalizing into that and you have him uh, or you are making those noises too. Uh, Any other thing, I use... um, little open buckets for this, so like little holiday buckets, like Easter buckets or those little Christmas buckets that you can get at Walmart or Walgreens or wherever you shop for things like that, and just that technique, I'm going to link the therapy tip of the week that I think I've done it before uh, for uh, Halloween, so for that kind of activity where where we model that, I'm going to link that there. I don't want to be repetitive here, but I want you to see that because you are leaning down into that bucket, and you are just making that noise and then giving a child an opportunity to do that too. And so these little props that we can use, and I've got a list of them here on uh, with your handout, those little sound effects with those props can be so powerful for for children. And so think about how you can use props like this. The last strategy that I want to talk about is one that uh, Pam Marshalla uh, has written about in her book, Becoming uh, Verbal with Childhood Apraxia of Speech, and it simulate crowd noise. And so this is effective when you have a mom or a dad or a teacher who says, the only time I hear him talk or make noise is when we are in a group. So it's like when we go to music class or when we're all singing our opening song or when the kids are just all going crazy in the gym. Or a mom might say, every time we're in the car when I have all four kids in the van, And everything is just chaos. That's when I hear him talk or when I hear him try to talk or vocalize. And so you know that about that child. You know that he's got to have a lot of auditory input before he's going to be comfortable vocalizing. And again, comfortable may not be the right word there. It just might be before his system is ready, before he's revved up, before he's calmed down. I don't know, you know, without seeing the child. But before he can do it, he's got to have a lot of that. So what do you do? You duplicate that. Uh, you replicate it. You do whatever you can for that. So you say to a parent, you know, let's try this here. And so what Pam Marcella describes and what I usually do with that is we get an activity that we can all play. And I tell everybody, and this might just be me and the mom and the kid. If it's, if all you've got is three people, that's all you have. But you might have other siblings who are with you for a home visit. Dad might be there. Whoever is there, you want everybody just making noise as they quietly play. And so it might be something like baby dolls. That's what I, I really do it with a lot, or cars and trucks, or farm animals, anything. And I just tell everybody, just play. Just talk to yourself, but don't use a lot of words. Use more vocalizations. And when we get that chatter going, a lot of times we notice child will start to do that too and so it's not going to happen automatically again it's like that movement strategy that we talked about first you've got to put in the time for that so it might take 15 or 20 minutes before you hear a child do that now sometimes a parent can get a little impatient with that because they think you know i'm paying you for a 60 minute session here and you're telling me that i'm just going to sit and play with baby dolls for 20 minutes and we hope that he makes the sound yeah (laughs) that's what we're saying (laughs) and so it's not a strategy that you would use with every kid but when you hear that when you hear a parent say the only time I really hear him vocalize is when there's a lot going on that's what you've got to do because you've got to get that child to be able to have that control over his own voice and know that he makes those sounds it's not just when he sneezes or coughs or or uh you know uncontrollable laughter He's doing that. It's on purpose. And so that's certainly another strategy you can use. Once you get a child making those kinds of sounds, whatever it happens to be, keep those going. Do everything you can to make that a turn-taking game. And guess what? When you get a kid to that level... You're ready to move on to imitation now imitation we talked about this a lot in show 407 so go back and think to yourself okay this is my goal this is my goal here i'm going to follow all these strategies until i can hear noise because once i hear noise i kind of feel like whew, whew, we're getting there then you move straight to imitation with that and then you get those imitation exchanges and then you increase the variety of noises that you get with that but it all starts for a kid who's really quiet with these kinds of things. And so I just wish you all the success in the world with these things. This can be the most challenging kind of child to work with because you think not only does he have autism, he also does not verbalize very much, vocalize, he's not very vocal, but this is where you start. It's not with words. So I've hope I've given you some great ideas for that today uh, don't forget about the autism workbook where you can get the written, uh, version of all this and the $5, uh, the $5 CEU credit so that you can get the handout, even if you don't, uh, even if you're not a therapist and don't officially need this course credit for your license or credentialing or whatever. All right. That's it for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for teach me to talk the podcast.